Good morning. If you're able, please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. As we think through Jesus' journey to Jerusalem this summer, we're just looking at various snapshots, character profiles, vignettes, however you want to describe these sections. And this morning we're looking at a rich ruler. Mark tells us he's also quite young, which I think is helpful to picture for us what is going on. But before we unfold the word, would you please stand as we read together God's word, as we did last week. When I'm finished, I will say this is the reading of God's word, to which you all in unison and perfect harmony respond. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pick it up in verse 15. Now they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began to rebuke them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and stop hindering them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never ever enter it. And a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard, he said to him, One thing. You are still lacking. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left all that is our own and followed you. And he said to them, Amen, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thanks be to God for his word. Wait, wait, wait. I got it wrong. This is the reading of God's word. Please remain standing as we pray. Father, we're so thankful that we've not come here to put on charades or to go through uh, some little ordeal, but we have come to sit under the teaching of your living word. We have come to look on Christ and to live. And so, Father, we would just ask this morning that you would be pleased for the sake of your Son to pour out the Holy Spirit in full measure. Oh, Father, the things that are impossible with man are possible with you. And, Father... I could preach for five minutes or five hours. I could scream. I could whisper. Father, we know that it is impossible for a mere man to bring about the new birth. It is impossible for any of us here, Lord, to create life where there is death. It is impossible for us to turn a sin-loving, self-loving, God-hating heart to cherish Christ above all things. That is, that is impossible. And so we are crying out for the miraculous this morning. We're crying out, Lord, that you would grant repentance unto life. That those who stand here this morning dead in sins would be granted the new birth from above. And Father, perhaps for some of us who have been born again, but have begun to stray, oh Lord, how we need divine grace to be brought back. And so Father, I would just pray. As the word is unfolded, as the gospel is proclaimed, would your spirit be working, 
granting not only repentance, but granting that wonderful faith. Father, we pray that we would leave here rejoicing, that we would leave here desiring to serve and to love the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would leave here fruitful. And so, Father, we just cry out this morning, have mercy on us. You granted it to the publican last week when he saw his own wretchedness, how undeserving he was. Lord, that was the very thing, Lord, that drew him to you. And we pray, Lord, that as we see ourselves through the law as needy uh, sinners, Lord, that we would come. And we'd come quickly. And we'd come helplessly. We would come trustingly, believing that Christ will do all that he promises to do. And so, Father, we trust that you will turn none who come to your son this morning. You will not send them away empty-handed. But, Lord, you will embrace them. And you will bless them. And we pray, Lord, for your blessing on us this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've seen in the last two weeks, Christ is as his, his habit making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. And this began all the way in chapter 9. That this is a major component of Mark's gospel that he spends over 10 chapters tracing through Christ's journey to Jerusalem. And the text, actually, that the Lord brought to my mind this morning was 2 Samuel chapter 5. And it's actually the story of another king approaching Jerusalem. You see, David was making his way to a town called Jebus. And it was, as it were, owned by the Jebusites. And David has with him a motley crew, if you will. You can read this in 1 Samuel And the Jebusites, when they saw David and his motley crew, they said, bring it on. David's army consists primarily of the lame and the blind. You can read this, 2 Samuel 5, 6. They're mocking David. And I thought, how interesting that as another king, thousands of years later, is approaching Jerusalem to receive his kingdom, he also has a motley crew with him. And the unbelievers, they don't get it. And sometimes even the disciples don't get the upside-down, topsy-turviness of the kingdom. That, That the kingdom of the true and the living God is comprised not of the noble or the mighty, not always of the of the most esteemed or educated, but rather of lepers and prostitutes who have been forgiven and publicans. People who are like children. And the reason I I was thinking about that is because the Pharisees asked in chapter 17 of Luke, they said, is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus says, it is here and it is in your midst. To which they would have looked and been like, this is very unimpressive, Jesus. Uh, Our understanding of the kingdom coming is you, mounted on a mighty steed, Rolling into Jerusalem with your javelin and your mighty Goliath slaying sword. And destroying these pagans, these Romans who've subjugated us. That's the kingdom. When's it coming? I look at these, these disciples. They're fishermen. Yeah, you've got a zealot. This guy looks kind of sketchy like a traitor. This is your kingdom, Jesus? Why are you still, why are you still wearing your robe? Where, where's the battle guard? It's in your midst. And what Jesus is doing in this final segment of teaching of discipleship, 9 through 19, is he's showing us, Luke 24 on, what the kingdom looks like. When we proclaim repentance to the nations, what does it look like for people to enter into the kingdom? Who are we to go after? Yes, all people. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when it's people like children the off-scouring of society, the nobodies, people who have nothing to offer. Don't be surprised when those people come into the kingdom, that they are ushered in, that they see that they are actually helpless and that repentance comes only to such people. Well, we see it this morning again. Last week we saw who left justified. Must have been the Pharisee. Did you hear that prayer? He alliterated it. He was speaking perfect Hebrew. 
Certainly not this publican standing far off in the court of the Gentiles. Certainly not him. The kingdom is not for sinners like him. To which Jesus says to his disciples and the Pharisees listening, this one, this despised one, this looked down upon one, this one, I tell you, has left in a state of justification. This one stands before God, righteous, and not that one. And we need to hear this. We constantly need to have our GPS, kingdom GPS, recalibrated. So before I look at this, here's some, here's some themes I want you to see. Go back to actually Luke chapter 1. Luke loves the downcast. And you know why he loves the downcast? Because God loves the downcast. In Luke 1 and 2, Jesus is portrayed as this royal king who has come into the world to bring the kingdom, to bring the salvation promised to to Abraham and to David. Who is Jesus born into the world? A lonely, unknown virgin. Where is he born? Certainly Jerusalem. No, no, no. Jerusalem will become his, as it were, heritage after he is crucified as a lowly slave. He is born in Bethlehem of Judea, Micah 5. Listen to the beginning of Luke. Because Luke's already laying the infrastructure of what the kingdom is going to be like. And and so whenever you're reading in the Bible, read the first couple chapters because it's basically giving you some of the flavors you should be expecting. And listen to what Mary says. She has a a little song that she sings. It's called the Magnificat. If you don't like Latin, that's okay. Verse 50, chapter 1. God's mercy is upon generation after generation Toward those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. See, it's the weak who depend on God's arm. Not the strong. The strong are self-sufficient and they need not a helper. Right? Mary embodies what Israel has always ought to be. A lowly, desperate, helpless servant. He is scattered proud. Or you could say he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Did we not see that last week? Who was the Pharisee praying to last week? Now, outwardly it sure looked like he was addressing God. But in the Greek it says, And the Pharisee, having took his stand, prayed pros auton to himself. God sees the Pharisee's heart. What does God do? To those who have proud thoughts in their heart, he scatters them. He has brought down rulers. Greek word, archon. You're going to see that word again this morning. Archon, rulers. What has he done to them? He made them deacons in the church and elders. Because they needs to have celebrities. That's how the kingdom grows. No, no, no. He has brought down rulers from thrones, and he has exalted those who are humble. How did we end last week's sermon? Again, I'm not trying to re-preach. I don't get paid per hour. Don't worry. (laughs) Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be. Future gents will be promised. They will be exalted. So don't be surprised when you read that in Luke 18, or Luke 15, or Luke 10, because in Luke 1, he's already laying that groundwork. Those who are humble, he exalts. He has filled the hungry with good things. And he has sent away the rich empty-handed. That's this morning. You're like, no, no, man. He had had like the latest gadgets. He left with lots. No, no, no. Spiritually speaking, kingdom of heavenly speaking, he leaves empty-handed. Jeff Bezos is a beggar. Elon Musk is a beggar. I know their eyes like vowing, who's the richest guy in the world? They're empty. And if we're honest, so are all of us, spiritually speaking. We are spiritually bankrupt, which is why we cry out to God, open up our eyes that we might see you. And having seen you, see ourselves. It's only the bankrupt who come to such a savior. This man left with everything. And tragically, he left with nothing. 
He sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Oh, praise God for his mercy. Go to chapter 6 quickly. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. We looked at that two summers ago in Matthew 5 through 7, yes. But these are just some things that we shouldn't be surprised when we see in Luke 18 that this is actually a thread that actually is traced all throughout Luke. Verse 20, And turning his gaze toward his disciples, he, Jesus, began saying, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, of course, you have to be careful of reading in the 21st century understanding of poor. If you read the Old Testament, the poor were the helpless, the needy, the destitute, that they did not have social assistance programs or welfare, that these were like the poor who were unable to work, those who had been, as it were, estranged, cast out, who could only utterly rely upon others. That, that's what he means, poor. Yes, financially, but so much more, to which Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew and Luke are not saying contradictory things. They're both inspired by the same Holy Spirit. And that's what Luke is saying here. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. He's contrasting two kingdoms. The now kingdom... And the coming kingdom, which has broken in and will be fully consummated. But, says Jesus, this is the upside-down topsy-turviness of the kingdom of God that is broken in the person of Christ. Blessed are those who cry now, for you shall laugh. That's the widow we saw two weeks ago. Blessed are you when men hate you and exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's Jesus next week. As he's saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, not to be received as a king but murdered as a criminal. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus talking about heavenly rewards here. He's talking about heavenly rewards in Luke 18. What are you going to choose? Which are you going to leave with in your hands? Heavenly rewards, which come only to beggars who ask believingly? Are you content with the trinkets of this world, the husks that will rot and fade. Verse 24, but woe to you who are rich. Now, he's not against rich people. He's against those who trust in their riches, who not merely possess riches, but are possessed by them. You are receiving your comfort in full. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, you have your reward now, present tense. You're getting your reward now. Oh, wait, trust. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and cry. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers were doing the same things to the false prophets. So let's look at Luke 18 quickly. I just wanted to show you that this is not a novel or a new Emphasis that Luke wants to leave us with. Now, he's closing out his discipleship lessons, right? He, he, he's almost in Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 952, I think, he sets his face like a flint, right? Fulfilling Isaiah. He has a mission. He has to die. He has to be raised and ascend. But before then, he's teaching his disciples. Remember, he's the king going away on a long journey. And how are they to live in the interim? Right before Christ returns to receive the kingdom in its totality and fullness and consummation. How are they to live? They are to preach the gospel. And they are not to be surprised that when they preach the gospel, many of the rich and powerful and mighty, the esteemed, the educated, that they turn their noses up and they leave. And it's actually a lot of the people that we would never suspect, actually, that receive this as good news. So what I want us to see in verses 15 through 17 is what I'm calling the center of a sandwich. I teach this all the time because this is actually, um, uh, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of? It's a literary device employed in the Old Testament and the New Testament called a chiasm. 
You've heard that before, but if you're visiting, it's a fancy technique to say that there's an outside that matches and then it's the inside that is the important takeaway, right? In Western culture, we always save the best for last, right? Like when you're watching me eat, I always save the best for last unless Nathan's over because I got to eat the best soon because he's going to be... But, but, but in Hebrew thinking, and Luke, though a Gentile, he follows Paul, right? Most of the Gentiles, they know the Old Testament more than we would think. Please don't think that, the, that Gentiles are ignorant of the Old Testament when they come into the church. They're learning it. So here's Luke employing an Old Testament device called chiasm. And so, so what you have here is you have um, one who is rejected, one who enters, children, one who rejects, one who enters. Okay? That, that's how he's thinking. Right? You, you see the Pharisee rejected, the publican accepted, children that's the center, children. I want you to leave with this idea of children. And then this morning and next week, we're going to look at one who is then rejected, the rich young ruler, and one who's accepted, Zacchaeus. Okay? But since I can only preach one message this morning, here's the center of the sandwich for this week and next week. You must be like a child if you enter into the kingdom. Now we're going to focus on the rich young ruler who is the anti-child. He is the very polar opposite. He is the expression of what it is not to be a child, which is why he does not enter the kingdom. They were bringing even their babies to him. Interesting. Luke is the only one who uses this Greek word for babies. Go look it up in, Mac, in Matthew 19 and in Mark 10. Right? We know the word pedo-baptism. That's pedion. That's usually what it means for child. Luke uses an interesting word here called brephos. And it has to do with a baby, right? So the LSB gets it. They're bringing their babies to him. ESV, infants, good. But it's this range usually between the age one and three. Look at a one-year-old. We got a couple of one-year-olds in our grace group. So on Friday, see little Grayson, right? This is the picture of what Jesus wants. Not the four-year-old slapping your hand when you're trying to help them. This is the newborn, as it were. Go and visit Jessica. Well, maybe they won't let you in, but when she goes back home, go visit. Right? You see little Joshua? That's Brephos. That's the helplessness. There's nothing he can contribute. This is the, you think the widow is, is the picture of ultimate vulnerability and dependence upon another? Jesus one-ups it. The widow can still feed herself. A Brephos can't. They have absolutely nothing by which they can contribute to their parents. That if they are to receive life, if they are to receive anything, it must be by sheer grace. The parents aren't like, okay, you know, you got something for me, let's do some tradesies. No, 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 that child's got nothing. And without the grace of that parent providing for them, that child will die. That's what Jesus is allowing into his presence. And the disciples didn't get it. They were the gatekeepers. Right? They were the bouncers. I don't know if you know what that word means, but for those of you who have a shady past, when you go to the bar, there's the bouncer, and they're the gatekeepers, and all the unsavory characters. Get out of here! Tragically, sometimes churches can become like that. You don't fit the mold here. You're not welcome here. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to take this misunderstanding of the kingdom by the disciples, and he's going to graciously, patiently, lovingly, admonishingly tell them what the kingdom's like, because they need to know. Right? It's the upside down in this. Right? I'm about to be crucified, so don't be surprised when those that I call into the world don't fit your worldly understanding of what the kingdom ought to look like. So they're bringing them to him. Right? He just tells them a parable, and they start bringing their children to him. This was just Standard back then. Usually around age one. I don't know why. This is what the scholars are saying, so just trust them. I'm just regurgitating what I read. But they would bring them to the rabbi. If, if it was a well-renowned, a well-respected rabbi, the mothers would bring their brephos, their child to them, their infant, their baby. Now, Luke doesn't say why, but Matthew and Mark fill it in. Matthew says that he might pray over them, and Mark says that he receives them and he blesses them. So I would say that this is what's happening. They're bringing him to Jesus, not for some like weird, charismatic touch of healing and stuff. 
This is just going on. Please, would you pray over our child, Rabbi? Would you bless them? The disciples see it, and they begin to rebuke them. <laughs> this actually picks up on, on sort of the, the interchange in, in, in Caesarea Philippi in, in, um, between Jesus and Satan. Uh, Jesus and, sorry, Simon, whom we call Satan. Right? And because Simon doesn't understand the kingdom, when he sees something, he begins to rebuke. And the disciples here, because they don't understand the kingdom yet, when they see something, they begin to rebuke. I think that's what you call intertextuality. There's a, there's a comparison. Right? If you don't see the kingdom rightly, you will live wrongly. And so they see, and they begin to rebuke the parents. Why? Because children, brephos, brephoi, have nothing to give to Jesus. Right? They're like his PR campaigner, right? Like, what are you going to do? You're not going to help us? Get out of here. Right? They're insignificant. See, children back then were seen, not like they are today. Children's are like, they're like almost godlike. Right? The parents are like, will do anything. Back then, children were seen as useless until they were of an age that they could contribute to the family. Until then, they're just mouths to feed. There's nothing new under the sun, which is why people still kill them. But Jesus doesn't see them that way. He sees them as the image of God. And Ohah must have grieved his heart to see the disciples whom he had been with for so long, for three years, manifesting, teaching, displaying the kingdom of God, rebuking the very kinds of people he came into the world to save. This is a great reminder for us. Be very careful of thinking that Jesus only needs a certain kind of people. If only Brad Pitt would get saved. If, if only whoever the celebrity is or the superstar sports guy, then God could really do something in this land. Maybe. Unlikely, though. You're just slowing Jesus down. He's got to get to Jerusalem. He's got a kingdom to claim. And you're just dead weight. You're just like, like Jacob's family slowing him down. Jesus stops. I'm willing to save such people. Jesus called for them. It's a wonderful word, proskaleo, often used of election, calling towards himself. The very people, the disciples were saying, get out of here. Jesus calls them to himself, saying, suffer, allow, permit, however you want that word to be translated, the children to come to me and stop hindering them. Stop it. Why? For, right? I'm always dropping arrows in my Bibles. This is why you should stop hindering them. The very people you're hindering are the very kind of people I came to save. Tax collectors, prostitutes, poor, blind, needy. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And that's important. Please don't think that children have some inherent um, you know, worth, right? Oh, they're children, therefore they're saved. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying there's something about children that give us the perfect picture of what it looks like to receive the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom. Remember? They ask, is the kingdom of God here? He's like, you better believe it's here. It's here in my presence. And then they look at the disciples and they're like, are you sure it's here, Jesus? The Pharisees are wondering, is your kingdom really here? You see who's following you? Who's your general? I don't see many horses. Right? Where's the arsenal? This guy's got a dull sword. Maybe it could cut off an ear or two. That's about it. For the kingdom of God belongs to, underline, such as. It's an emphatic word in the Greek. And what is it about children? I read all kinds of commentaries, and here's a list that I've compiled, at least that I can remember. First of all, they're helpless. They're helpless. They're utterly reliant and dependent upon another. Some think also that they're trusting. And I would say that. Right? That, that newborn, when they, when they need milk, they just receive it. They're not asking 50,000 questions. 
Right? They just, it's there, I need it, I'll take it. And so that's what Jesus is saying. To which I would ask you, if I were to drop dead right now, are you like that? Or do you think you got it all together still? Right? If Jesus is picking teams, right? Kingdom Jesus team. Uh, oh yeah, that guy, he's got talent. I can use him. He's a little rough around the edges. I got him. That's not how Jesus picks. Go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Go and read it. Right? If I'm boring you, if I'm turning you off, just go and read 1 Corinthians 1. Here's, the, here's Jesus' team. And the reason why Jesus picks this team is that he alone might be glorified. That the boast of his children might not be in themselves, quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. They might boast in Yahweh. They might boast in Christ. So remember this. If you're sharing the gospel, and somebody is haughty and arrogant and proud, they're not ready for the kingdom. They're not ready. Which is why I'm going to show you in the next section, Jesus takes them to the law. I'll never forget it. It was about seven years ago. I was back home in Selkirk, and we were sharing the gospel on Reformation Day. For those of you who are not as holy as us, that's also known as Halloween. <laughs> and I come from a town that is, is heavily populated with, with natives. And we're talking with this guy, and he's talking about all of his sweats and all that he's done. And we're trying to be nice to him and trying to, like, you know, friendship and trying to get in there. And the pastor behind me was this. He's like, give him the law. Give him the law. Give him. He had to say it three times because we thought we were going to be super nice and win them in. This guy did not see his need. He was not a child yet. And it's through the law that we're going to see in Galatians 3 and Romans 5 that God exposes the bankruptcy of our hearts and displays to us the holiness of God. It's not just for Pharisees. Your little children, as cute as they are, in Adam, when they get old enough, they're going to display young ruler-like characteristics. They need no one to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And if they enter the kingdom, it's because of something they've done. No, no, trust me. Little Reformed Baptist kids will be saying that if they're not regenerated. Why? Because it is germane to our human nature. We are self-sufficient little legalists unless grace changes us. Permit the children to come to me. Allow them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly. You'll notice that I read, you're like, why is he showing? Amen. When Jesus says amen, he's not like a Baptist in a service. Amen! It comes from the Hebrew word amen, which has reliability, truth, and surety. So you underline this. This is not 99% probable. This is 100%. Whoever does not receive, that's what a child does. He receives. He has nothing to offer. He receives it like a beggar. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, now he switches to that word paideon, right? This little bruff, he receives it like a child. He will never, ever enter it. That's how I translate it. The most emphatic way you can do something in Greek is to double negate it. Ume. So here's God incarnate speaking to us this morning. If you don't receive the kingdom of like a helpless, bankrupt, needy, dependent child, you'll never, ever, ever enter it. Which is why you have to pray for God to change hearts. Because this is not natural to anybody, but only supernatural. Verse 18, let's get to the rich young ruler. Man, that clock is running fast. And a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do? This reminds me of when I'm sharing the gospel so often with an LDS person. You're just hammering the neediness and the total depravity 
And then after you share the gospel with them, and you think they got it, they're like, so I need to be a good person. And I want to just like run headfirst into a wall because they, but it's not because of their intellectual inability. It's moral. Please don't, please don't look down your nose on them like we saw last week. We're not looking down with contempt. We're just crying out to God. Change their hearts. This is foolishness to them, the cross. Because the cross doesn't show us how awesome we are. It shows us how helpless we are. So here's the rich young ruler. He's like, yes, can't wait. Uh, Jesus is talking. He's blessing. Good. When they're all done, I've got a, I've got a burning question. It's like, have you listened to him? Whoever does not receive it. Verse 18. What do I need to do? I just told you. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Receive this free gift like a child. Oh, how providence it was. I was actually going to bring a 50 or or $100 bill like early on in the week. I'm glad I didn't write this down in my notes. And I was going to offer it to somebody, hoping that one of my kids would have gotten it and then taken me out for lunch. I was going to say, I've got a fifth. I don't, Shiloh. I don't have it. <laughs> a 50 or a $100 bill. And if you know my nature, this would have been something. I'm like, maybe we should do 20. No, 50 or 100. And if I just said, whoever wants it, come and receive it. And then right away, Jared's like, what do I need to do to get it? Just come and take it. Well, here's why you should get, just come and receive it. So here he is, like every other human born into the world, irrespective of whatever religion they want to you know, sort of advertise upon themselves. I'm not picking on just Mormons or Catholics or Muslims. In professing evangelical churches that are gospelists, this is just as true. Do to get. The gospel is simply this. It is done. Now believe. That's radical. And it's offensive. And people will leave sad or mad. Or as Beg would say, or glad. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? This was unheard of, by the way. Again, I'm trusting smart men who wrote commentaries, and they all agree that it had never, ever been addressed, whether in the Torah, in the Old Testament, or even uh, among the rabbis, that you would ever address anyone, including a rabbi, a teacher, as good. Why? Because they had a high view of God. Jesus is admonishing and rebuking him, but he's also going to use this to help him think about what he's just said. Okay? Good teacher! He comes to flatter. Kind of like Nicodemus, but Nicodemus knows not to use this word, tov, or in the Greek, agathos. Good teacher! Hey, buddy! What shall I do? To inherit. What do your kids need to inherit your wealth from you? They just need to be born. <laughs> do you see the irony? What do I need to inherit? Nothing. If you belong, you get. Jesus responds to him, verse 19, why do you call me good? Now, there's a multiple layer kind of, it's like a seven layer salad going on here. There's not just one answer to why Jesus says this. When he says, why do you call me good? I do agree, and I've always held to the view that Jesus here doesn't say, wait a minute. Stop calling me good because I'm not God. I think this is actually an inherent affirmation of Christ through silence of his divinity. What did he just say? Christ is God. Right? Because he could have said, wait a minute, don't you dare call me good. He didn't, he didn't say that. He says, only God is good. And he's basically saying, and you're right. I'm good. Okay, so that's the first thing. I, I think this is actually uh, one of those passages you could sneak in and say, yeah, see? The Son of God incarnate is good, therefore he is God. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just like, a, you know, a supersized kind of moral guy. He's good, and only one is good, God. And so just put your mind together. If, if only God is good, and Jesus is saying that he's good, what does that mean? Jesus is God. 
The second thing he's doing, and I'm going to borrow from R.C. Sproul, though I've always held to this too, is that Jesus is going to properly define for this man what that word means with God being the standard. Because this guy thought he was good. This guy thought he was good. And he says, no, only God is good. And I said it, I think two weeks ago, maybe last week, I can't remember. Right? We can always find somebody else who's lower than us. I can always find someone that I'm gooder than. You homeschoolers twitched on that, I know. <laughs> right? We can always do that, but I will always find someone that I'm more good. Right? I can always find someone like that. Right? And you're like, well, I'm more gooder than you in grammar, buddy. Right? But that's the problem, is that when I am self-referential or on, a, on an earthly, horizontal plane... Right? I can always find someone good. Right? And for you, it's easy just to stand beside me and you can say, at least I'm not like that guy. And what Jesus is trying to say is, now with that definition of God being the sole gooder, let's compare you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to bring this man before the bar of God's goodness. To which Paul would say theologically in Romans 3, there is None who is good, in fact, no, not one. Not comparatively speaking, you say, yeah, that was, you know, yeah, he's a good man. But objectively, there is only one. The very essence and definition of good is God. And so Jesus is going to expose this man and to try to show him he's not good. In Mark, Right after the parable, or sorry, right after the incident of Jesus blessing the children, it says that this man came running and that he was young. Now, why am I saying that? We're going to see here that this man epitomizes the polar opposite of a needy child. You've got children entering, and here's this man. And then Mark says, not only is he a man, he's a young man. Right? He's, everyone knows him as the rich ruler? No, he's the rich young ruler. Luke doesn't call him young. Mark does. And the Greek word for young here is sort of in, 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 the, in the vitality of his life. Right? He can do it all. Right? He needs home renovations. I got it. Right? I need to learn something. I'm smart. I need to do something. I'll go seize the world. That's this man. And so Jesus has to bring him down. And Jesus has to deflate him. Jesus has to show him. That he's not good. How does Jesus show this man that he's not good? He doesn't say, dude, you're not good. You're not good. Not into the kingdom. He takes a mirror. Not a, not a carnival mirror. Right? You know, you can go in there and it distorts things. Like short guys like me can look tall. Tall guys like Anthony can look short. Those are false mirrors. It's like false gospels. But Jesus holds up the mirror of God's law, of God's character... To reveal to this man, praying that he'll have eyes to see who he really is before this holy God. And so he uses the law. And this is something that has been completely put away in our day and age. Right? People hear law and they're like, oh, legalist. The law is good. It's like honey, it's sweet. It shows us who God is and what he desires, but the law also shows us. We need him. The law has always shown us that we need a savior. Let me just show you that quickly. I could quote it, but go to Romans 5.20. Some of you know this, but that's okay. This is a review for some of you. Hopefully it's new for others. So, so actually, I brought this book. I want to recommend this book. It has nothing to do with my sermon, but I'm just so hot. Why Did Jesus Live a Perfect Life by Brandon Crow? you got to read it. Wonderful stuff. One of the best books I've read. So here in Romans 5, Jesus, uh, Paul is contrasting the first Adam with the second Adam. And he's explaining now why the law came. Verse 20. Now the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded, I would translate superabounded. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, and what Paul's doing in Romans and in Galatians, 
even in Ephesians to some extent, is he's showing the Jews the true purpose of the law. They thought, oh, we're good people. This rich young ruler is going to say the same thing. I'm a good person. And Paul's like, you missed the law. Adam was given, as it were, a covenant of works. Do this and live. Leviticus 19. Adam forfeited that through his disobedience. No one else is able now to merit eternal life. And so, so God gives the law to show them that. If you want eternal life, you must be sinless. In Adam, we're not sinless. But God gives the law to show us that we are sinful. It's a gift. And if I'm walking around with like cream cheese in my beard, someone better show me a mirror. Don't be nice to me. Don't be saying, hey, right? dude, you got cream cheese all over your beard. The best thing you can do is expose that. And so God in his grace gives grace, John 1. He gives the grace of law. You don't have to look at it, but Galatians 3.19 says the exact same thing. That the law exposes and we are needy. The law seeks to show us we're helpless, needy, insufficient. The law is actually meant to humble us and make us childlike. So Jesus goes there. You know the commandments. I'm not going to get into them. We did this in Sunday school last year. But he goes through the second table of the law. Right? He goes commands 5 through 9. Not in perfect order, but you can go there. Look in Exodus 20. Look in Deuteronomy 5. Here's commands 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Number 5, honor your father and your mother. Mirror. Verse 21 unthinking, unreflective, rash, arrogant, is his answer. These things, all of them, I have guarded from my youth. I would translate that. I have diligently kept. It's, it's an interesting Greek word. He could have said, I just did. But the Greek word has to do with guarding. Like you would like guard a jail cell. I've guarded these commands. Verse 22. And when Jesus heard, he said to him, one thing you still lack. This is tricky. I, I thought about this for a long time. Like, what in the world? That's right? why you always got to pray for whoever's preaching. None of the commentaries helped me. What's the one thing he lacked? And there's tons of suggestions. So here's my answer, and I'm going to explain it quickly, and I hope it will be helpful. Go to Luke chapter 10 quickly. Because I'm reading Luke 18 canonically, and Luke 10 precedes Luke 18. So he begins his journey to Jerusalem with such a story called the Good Samaritan, and he ends his journey to Jerusalem with a very similar story. Someone comes to him, right? 25, behold, a scholar of the law stood up and was putting him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Exact same question. And Jesus said to him, what is written in Torah, in the law? How do you read it? And then he actually answers to Jesus, quoting some of the commandments, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. See, I, I really believe that the Old Testament to the New says, if you can keep the law perfectly, you will have eternal life. But the law says you can't. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he goes on and he goes on. He gives them this story about the Good Samaritan. And then Jesus basically summarizes, says, here are the two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. So he says, you're lacking one thing. Okay, so think with me. Go back to Luke 18. What commands did Jesus quote to him? Numbers 5 through 9. What table of the law is that on? In the second, okay? Just work with me on this. What does the second table of the law have to deal with? 
interpersonal relationships, right? Horizontal, how we treat our neighbor, right? There's the two commands, love God, love neighbor. And so here's this guy outwardly, as it were, keeping the second table of law. But the two tables of the law cannot be separated. And so what I think he's saying is, you lack one thing. You lack the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. You do not love me with all of your heart. You have outward forms of religion, but you have no inward affection, love for God, no faith, trust, reliance, dependence upon him. How do I know that? Because Jesus is now going to expose the one thing he lacks. Notice he didn't quote the 10th commandment. What's the 10th commandment? Don't covet. And Luther says, when you break the first commandment, you break all the others. If you don't love God supremely, you'll break all the other commandments. And the reason why this man is an idolater, why he covets money, is because he does not love God supremely. Okay? That's what's going on here. I think. You can prove me wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm quite confident of that. The one thing you lack, it's the most important thing. The reason you're not in the kingdom is because you don't love the king. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Is Jesus saying that you buy your way into heaven? That's not what he's saying. The whole Bible screams against that. Right? But if you receive it as a gift, now he's doing something? No, no. Jesus is actually, as omniscient God, exposing to this man that he does not love the Lord, his God, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do you know that? Well, you have to conduct a test. This, the proof is in the pudding. How, how do you know that you love God? Well, you'll love your neighbor. And what does it look like to love your neighbor? Not hoarding up tons of stuff and watching them suffer, right? Like the, the, the parable of the, of the rich man and Lazarus. And so here's Jesus exposing him, still using the law. Cross-reference, Matthew 7. Paul was an idolater who loved money. But in God's sovereign grace, the law came alive and he died to his self-righteousness. So he's not saying, you know, buy your way into the kingdom. He is saying you cannot trust in two masters simultaneously. You will love the one, hate the other. You will cling to the one or despise the other. You can't have it both ways. You cannot serve both God and mammon, money. So, so I love, I love the, the Greek. Jesus hears, he says, verse 23, identical in the Greek. When he heard these things, what happened? Yes! You mean I can, get the, I can trade all of this garbage for gold? He does not have eyes to see. If God opens your eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his kingdom, you'll give up everything. In a heartbeat. When he heard these things, he became not just sad, very sad. Why? For he was exceedingly rich. Luke is a very good storyteller. Let's keep going, because it is getting late. 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those I wouldn't translate who are wealthy, who have possessions. Because some of us have possessions like, well, at least I'm not wealthy. I think this is all of us. Right? Because we could, we could always find somebody and say, well, I'm not as wealthy as them. You, you might not be as wealthy, but Jesus said, are you willing? Right? The, the, problem, sorry, the poor person can trust in the little they have. And keep themselves out of the kingdom just as much as the rich person can trust in their abundance to keep themselves out of the kingdom. How hard it is. Remember that. When you're on the, right, I remember when you're in Toronto, remember even in Winnipeg, going on all the rich areas, crying out, God, you got to save these people. It's hard for these business guys. Why? Because they got everything in life. <laughs> Jesus will give you your best life now. I got it. So you've got to take them to the law. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter. Enter into the kingdom of God, which is equivalent to eternal life. But that's for another sermon. For it is easier for the biggest animal possible, imaginable 
to enter through the smallest hole possible. Don't listen to MacArthur and, and, and his camel gate. That wasn't written until the 14th century. Jesus is just very vivid. The largest thing you can imagine. A camel entering. That's impossible. You got it. It's not just hard. You know, the camel squeezes through the gate. It's not what Jesus is saying. He preaches well, but it's just not right. They get it. How do you know the translate? Well, look at the next verse. Who can be saved? See, back then, just like today, they thought, oh, the rich people have God's blessing on them. And surely, if they're rich, God's blessing is on them. And now you're saying they can't be saved. It's impossible for them to be saved. Just like it is impossible for everyone to be saved. Verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. God could put a camel through the eye of a needle, just so you know. No, he can't. I'm not saying he has, and I'm not telling him he has to, but he can. Christ walked on water, he rose from the dead, Jonah's in the belly of a fish. For th- like, God created all things ex nihilo, but power, I get it. So he could, but humanly speaking, right? Like, you could take, who are the strongest men in the church beside me? I don't know, but you could have them all try to push a camel through, through a big needle. Won't happen. Man can't do that. And Jesus saying, as hard as you think that is, so also is anybody, let alone a rich person, entering into the kingdom of God. How do you enter into the kingdom of God? I'm so glad you asked. Receive it like a child. Well, how do I receive it like a child? Last proof text. Go to Matthew 18. You really have to see this. Um, Mark 10. Mark 10. I got you going. Just <laughs> gotcha. Mark 10. This is why it's good to draw little lines in your Bible. So this is what I did. I got a little arrow in verse 14 of, of Mark 10. Permit the children to come to me. Stop hindering them. Okay, that's verse 14. And then I drew a line all the way down to verse 24. Okay, this is the same parable, but Mark's rendition of it. And the disciples were amazed at his words. What words? How hard it is for those to enter the kingdom. Right, so they're freaking out. Who can be saved? What does Jesus say? Listen, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So they've become like children, and they've entered the kingdom of God. He says, we've given it all up. How? Now go to Matthew 18. Okay? So when Jesus says children, he's not talking about literal children. He's talking about spiritual children. You, you disciples, Peter, you're like in your 40s. You're a child. You received the kingdom. How? Was Peter smarter? Was he better? Did he depend on his intellect? No. I've tried to argue that that opposes it. All you Calvinists, listen to this verse. Jesus called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Amen, I say to you, unless you are converted. You got the ESV? Scratch that out. The ESV says, unless you turn. You can't turn. You're dead. Go and look at something that's dead, right? Dead pigeon on the road. Turn. Tell them to turn. Go to, go to a morgue. Tell them to turn. They can't. It's in a passive tense. Nasty ESV translators. What's the matter with you? No, serious. Language is important. This is the past. We are recipients of grace. Who turns me so that I turn? Sovereign grace turns me. Unless you are turned, or the uh, 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 LSB, unless you are converted. That's who's a child. God converts. Here's the parallelism. Unless you are converted and become like children. You're like, see, I still got to do something. That's in the passive tense too. You are converted. You are made like a child. Unless you are converted to become like children, you will never ever enter the kingdom of heaven. Write those, those references in there. Matthew 18 is interpreting for us Luke 18. And God in his kindness even gives us 18s to match. How hard is it? It's impossible. It's impossible to cultivate a childlike mentality. Only grace can make us like children. Whether we're 5 or 21 or 40 or 70, 
whether we're made a child hanging beside Christ on the cross, like the thief who was converted in his dying breaths. You must be converted. And only grace does that. Who can be saved? Take it easy. God can do it. And that is our only hope. Peter goes on to say, and I'll finish here, look at all we've done. And Peter sa- uh, Jesus says, this has all been granted to you. But Peter and the rich man's listening, it's worth it. I think Jesus is still pleading with the rich man. You look in the other accounts, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This man is looking at Jesus, looking at his treasures, looking at the kingdom of heaven, looking at the kingdom of man. And he still chooses death. And Jesus says, why will you die? And here he is speaking to Peter, saying, it's worth it. It's worth it, Peter. Everything you give up for the kingdom now, it's worth it. And still this rich young ruler goes on his merry way. Well, that's our text. I have a couple of applications that I wrote down for us this morning. Three for unbelievers, one for believers. Give me a second here. Oh, technology. It's my friend today. One. Here's the promise of eternal life. Right? Jesus is teaching. What can you take away? The promise of eternal life, one, is only for those who abandon all self-reliance and follow Jesus. What are you relying on? We're going to sing it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing. Right? Not, not even your tears. Not even your zeal, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, look to thee for dress. Helpless, come to thee for grace. Foul, double entendre, I come. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You're like, well, I've already come. This is how you're going to preach to your coworkers, to your children, to your neighbors. You, you cannot save yourself. You, you, you not only need to repent of your publican-like sins, you need to repent of your pharisaical self-righteousness. We need to repent as much for our good deeds as we do for our bad deeds. Forsaking all, I trust him. That's faith. Not forsaking most, for, forsaking convenient. Forsaking all. You must abandon it. Please don't be like the rich young ruler, having everything and nothing. Second, the promise of eternal life is only received because of God's doing, not ours. It is the gift of God. Salvation by grace through faith, gift of God. Even your receiving is by God's enabling. Have you believed? Praise his name. Are you born again? Give all glory to him. Salvation is of Yahweh. Thirdly, the promise of eternal life is a secure reward that more than compensates for the losses in this life. Peter, in the regeneration, you will say it has been worth it all. When you see Jesus, it is worth it. All those things you seemingly sacrificed, worth it. Be like patience in the pilgrim's progress. Last thing, and this is for believers. Cultivate a childlike mentality. It will do you much good in this life. God brought this to my mind this week. And I love this psalm. It's a short one. If you want to memorize a psalm and show off, Psalm 131. Oh, Yahweh, my heart is not exalted. And my eyes are not raised high. See, this is what grace does. Last week, you want to be humbled? Look at God in his sovereign grace. Look to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I do not involve myself in great matters or in matters too marvelous for me. Here it is. Surely I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. A child, all hell can be breaking out. And when he's in the presence of his mom, there's comfort. Why? He has learned to trust the life-giving nourishment of another. That's what I want for myself. When all hell is breaking loose, that anchor holds. 
surely have soothed. Some of us need to be soothed and quieted in our soul. And it only comes from weaning yourself like a child on Christ. Oh, Israel, wait for Yahweh from now and forever. Let's pray. Father, my great desire is that you would be honored in this as your son is publicly proclaimed as all-sufficient, that his crucifixion really was necessary, but also his perfect life. And so, Father, I'm just pleading with you that we would return to Christ even this morning. Those of us who need to be quieted, soothed, oh, Lord, wean us. Help us to trust, to feed on the gospel. Help us to see that, that we are helpless. And yet you have always promised, Lord, to help such people. Even as Marvin, I think, reminded us from Matthew 11, that Jesus doesn't say, clean yourself up, but come to me. All you with your heavy burdens, all of those things you carry and toil, would you give us faith? Would you help us believe, Father, your son is that good? That he will not slap us in the face, that he will receive us? he will take our burdens. That he will take all of our, our troubles. And he will give us joy. That he will give us life. That he will give us an inheritance in the kingdom. Father, I just want to pray if there's anyone here this morning, or this afternoon, I guess, who has not entered into the kingdom with childlike faith, that today would be the day of salvation. That today they would be awakened to the realization that the only thing they contribute to their salvation is the sin that nailed Christ to that bloody cross. And I pray that you would irresistibly draw them. Oh, Father, I beg you. And help us to go out now into this world preaching this message of good news, which is only good news to those who see it as such. So open up the eyes of our children, open up the eyes of our neighbors, open up the eyes of our coworkers, and God, increasingly, open up our eyes to the reality of what the kingdom of God is truly like and help us to live in a manner worthy of it now we ask, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.